we've, I want to say we finished the Sermon on the Mount, but you're never finished with the Sermon on the Mount because that should be the lifestyle that we live. So every day should be the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but we're going to start a series called The Awesome Foursome. And uh, we're going to look at Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And we'll begin with Galatians. And um, this is one of the few times I will, to, to your benefit, I will do a whole chapter and one teaching. After that, it, it gets a little more, more detailed. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's truth. God, that your grace is sufficient for us and that there is um, one Savior. God, there is one gospel. Uh, there is one truth, one life, and one way, and that's Jesus. <laughs> Holy Spirit, we ask that you um, reveal your word deep in our heart as we continue to walk in the fullness of the life you set before us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we, uh, as we jump into this, the book of Galatians is unique from any book that Paul wrote. The uniqueness is it's the only letter he wrote that's not addressed to a specific church. Um, it is addressed to a region. There is no city of Galatia. There is a region called Galatia. And this, uh, this region um, was the north central region of Asia Minor. So it would be like Paul's writing a letter to the San Gabriel Valley. So it would be to Azusa and Dewardi and Covina and West Covina and Pasadena and Arcadia and Monrovia. And uh, Galatia today would be the north central uh, region of Turkey. So up in that area, and it included, so this letter was addressed to multiple churches. It included the church at Antioch, which was the mega church of the day, and the church at Iconum, the church at Lystra, the church at Derby. And the reason he's writing this letter um, is because he, his authority has been challenged. Uh, the authority of Paul as an apostle. Now, the standards for determining one's apostleship, if we'll use that word, there was a criteria. Number one, uh, you have crucifixion. And number two, before uh, his crucifixion. And number two, you had to have seen Jesus after he was risen from the dead. That was the criteria used by the church then to see if someone... It had the authority to say, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul um, presents himself as an apostle, and uh, his office of apostleship gets challenged. And it gets challenged by a group of people that are called Judaizers. And the Judaizers were Jews who had accepted the truth that Jesus was Messiah, but they believed you could not be saved if you did not adhere to the law. And so part of their message, number one, because Paul, the message of Paul, the primary message of Paul was grace. And because of grace, Paul said, we have been set free from the law. 
that Jesus fulfilled the law and everything about the law was fulfilled in Christ. Judaizers were saying that's not the case. Paul is presenting another gospel. And one of the um, requ requirements or demands of Judaizers was that any Gentile, their salvation was not real. And so these, uh, they believed the promises of God belonged only to the Jews. So if you were a Gentile and you accepted Jesus as Messiah, you had to become a Jew. And um, so that they believed that the observance of the law had to be added to faith in order for conversion to be real. And... Um, this contradicted everything that Paul taught, particularly that salvation was by grace through faith alone. There were no requirements. And so um, what they, they, they began to challenge his authority and basically calling him a secondhand apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12 uh, followers of Jesus. They, uh, they said he was inferior specifically to Peter and to James, and here's kind of an interesting contradiction in their argument. James was the brother of Jesus. I mean, flesh and blood, brother of Jesus. Well, half-brothers. They had the same mom, different dads. James did not believe Jesus was Messiah until after Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, if you think about it, if you have a brother that you grow up and you play with in your house, and he says, by the way, I'm Messiah, you know, God's my daddy, Joseph's not. It would be tough for brothers and sisters, and pretty much we know that none of his brothers and sisters believed who he was, only his mother. And um, as a result, when you read the, the books of John, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, um, you find that when it comes to um, a true heart-knit relationship between two who would be brothers, John and Jesus were probably the closest thing to brothers. John, when he talks about himself in the book of John, talks about himself in third person and calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we do know that when Jesus was crucified, all the other apostles ran away. John was the only one who stayed and was at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mom, Mary. And Jesus has this, not even conversation, he has this mandate for John. And for his mom, he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And that Jesus passes the responsibility of caring for his mom, not to his brother James, but to the apostle John. And so this is, this is where we are in this whole thing. And so, um, you know, Paul argued um, that a watered-down gospel... Um, would be more attractive to the Gentiles and Gentiles to want to be saved. And the second thing was, is that under grace, much of the law has disappeared. So I want, I want to read Galatians 1. If you have your Bibles, follow with me. If you don't, take out your smart whatever you got. And uh, it's in there. And so Paul is writing... So the, this first chapter, there's almost a bit of indignation in the way he's writing. So he's writing to all these churches. It's a letter that's going to be passed around to every one of them. And he's really saying, okay, guys, um, you, you need to pay attention to what's going on. So he begins by saying, Paul, an apostle, 
not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, to all brethren and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So he's starting out by saying, first and foremost, he didn't just say Paul the Apostle, from Paul the Apostle, which he starts with all his letters. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men. And we're going to talk about that in a moment because that was part of the challenge. Not from men, nor through man. So he's making it very clear. I'm writing to you with the full authority of God the Father and Jesus his Son, whom God raised from the dead. So he begins, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And just let me hit a period right here. There's only one gospel, period. There can't be two gospels. So he didn't say to another gospel. He said to a different gospel. So there is one true gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. So he says, you're, you're presenting another gospel. Or actually he's telling the Galatians, you are beginning to embrace another gospel than the one I taught you. He said, um, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let them be accursed, or better yet, let them be damned. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let them be. Seek to please men, for do I now persecute men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For neither for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Jerusalem, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my compadres, of my contemporaries, in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by the face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. 
So you can see kind of the tenor of what Paul's dealing with. And so um, he begins, verse 9, he says, If anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So Paul is basically saying, what I'm writing you, eternity hangs in the balance. If, if you are going to believe a gospel different than the gospel I have shared with you, you need to know that the result is going to be damnation. Um, and so when he says, let it be a curse, this Greek word is athema. And we have the word athema in the English language. And an athema is us um, detesting something that is not good. And so he said, if you're going to accept another gospel, you're going to be detested as something that is not good. But he goes beyond that because in the Greek, athema literally means you're going to be cursed or damned. In other words, you're going to be damned to hell. So, um, and, he's, and, and the curse that he speaks over them is nothing compared to the curse that God spoke over all of humanity. In fact, it says in Galatians, we'll read when we get to chapter 3, but we'll talk about it. But he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the curse that God put upon us is much greater than the curse that Paul was just speaking of, because the curse that was put upon us because of sin required death. And Jesus paid the price for us. And so um, Paul, um, there's rumors going around also that um, claiming to have come from James in Jerusalem, and, and we'll get to it when we get to chapter 2, but he says this, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing that those were of the crucifixion. So they're saying the rumors around Galatia are this, that James sent some guys down to confront Paul about this gospel that he was preaching. And all of a sudden, Paul, who had been eating with the Gentiles and breaking bread with the Gentiles, when James challenged him, he withdrew from those people, didn't have a relationship with them. Uh, for fear, it wasn't true, made of those who were circumcised. Now, that was a rumor. It wasn't true, and Paul addresses it in chapter 2. But those are the things that are going around. They're doing all they can to discredit Paul's teaching of salvation by grace through faith alone. And so um, Paul, in, in, in response, says, Cursed, damned be those who lead people um, away from the curse-removing gospel of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, so people were exposed to this different gospel, which are no gospel, and they were exposed to it every day. And he addresses it later in Galatians. He says in verse chapter 5, he says, um, You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. Again, he says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 4, O foolish one, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And so all the gifts of the Spirit they received would have no lasting value if they tried to walk them out by the law as opposed to faith. And so there are a lot of people today who are being lured away in the church because of a false grace. And the false grace today is not that we need to become Jews. 
The false grace today is that because we have already accepted the forgiveness of Christ and therefore God sees us as perfect, then if we sin, we don't have to worry about sinning because grace is sufficient for us. And therefore we need to be more accepting of those who struggle in sin. And so what happens today in the church is the church has begun to embrace, I'm talking about the church at law, I'm not talking about this, but they've begun, begun to embrace culture as acceptable because God's grace will be enough to forgive them even if they continue in their sinful or their evil lifestyle. And this that the Jews were, or the Gentiles were being taught was not to that extreme, but what they were being taught is, look it, if you do not embrace Judaism fully, then you are not saved. Grace is not enough to save you. You have to adhere to the law as well. And if you're gonna to adhere to the law as well, man, you gotta line up, you gotta go visit the moil, you gotta be circumcised, or you're not going to be saved. And so I want to look at chapter 1, but I'm going to look at it backwards. I'm going to look at it from the bottom up instead of, of the top down. Um, I'm not going to follow the order that Paul writes. I'm going to start at the end of the chapter and move back to the beginning. And I want to rebuild the argument better from the outcome than it is from the accusation. And it's kind of like, it, I'm not changing anything. It would, it would be, and I give you this example, that if somebody said, I can't talk now, I'm late, I have to hurry or I'm going to miss my train or I'm going to miss my appointment or whatever. So if, let's say someone texted that to me. I'm supposed to meet someone. Let's say David texted it to me and David texts, I can't talk now, I'm late, I have to hurry, I'll miss my train. So there's a bunch of other guys who are supposed to meet with us too, but he only texted me, and so it's my job to let the other guys know David's not going to be there. Now, I could just read the text. could read the text verbatim, or I could analyze it, or what I call Rickize it. And um, I could rebuild it, starting with the deepest foundation, ending with the final outcome. And so I, could, I would say, look it, uh, David was late, he was about to miss his train, and because he was in such a hurry, he couldn't talk to us. So... I didn't say exactly what he said. In fact, I said in opposite order, but the point was still the same. He can't talk because he's late and he's going to miss his train. So I just want you to see that even though Paul says, I can't talk now, I'm late after hurry, I missed my train, I'm going to tell you he was late about to miss his train, so he was really in a hurry and consequently he couldn't talk. So I'm going to tell you the same thing, but I'm going to tell it in reverse order. Just so you follow um, that he going to know where I'm going. So I'm, I'm following Paul's argument to the final outcome um, that he is astonished. The conclusion is this. He's blown away that people want to leave the gospel that he's been teaching. That they are easily persuaded to, to run after something else. And specifically being that they were going to forsake grace and embrace the law. They were going to forsake everything that Christ had done, and they were going to embrace everything that existed before Christ came. So we jump down to verses 15 and 16. So Paul wants, first of all, he wants to deal with the issue of who he is and why he has the authority to say what he's saying, because the primary thing that is challenged first to present a different gospel is they have to disqualify Paul. They have to convince the people that Paul is not who he says he is. He doesn't have the authority he says he has. Therefore, you can't 
accept what he's teaching you is truth because he's got it all wrong. So here's what he says in verse 15, 16. He says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. So Paul's going all the way back to before conception. Separated me from my father's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. So this isn't even the main point, but there's, there's two implications here that we need to understand for us to fully embrace the main point. So first of all, the mission for Paul was to include Gentiles and that including Gentiles was not an afterthought by God. In other words, part of the argument of the Judaizers was this, that Gentiles were not plan A. Jews were plan A, and actually Gentiles were plan B. And so if Gentiles want to jump on the band or, or the, 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 you know, the plan A bandwagon, then they've got to become a Jew. Because plan A was always for the Jews. And Paul's saying that, look it, there wasn't a plan A and there wasn't a plan B. There was one plan, period. Christ came and died for all. That's why he later says, in, in God, in Jesus, there's neither male nor female, Jew, nor Greek, slave, nor free. He wanted to make it very clear when Jesus came, he didn't come just for one sector of people. He came for everyone. And so God planned Paul's apostleship before there were any apostles, according to what Paul writes here right now. And Paul's apostleship began on the road to Damascus. Um, when he was a Christ-hating, Christian-persecuted, cuting Pharisee. And so he says this, and he explains it in verse 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. Now he's saying you have heard because, again, he's writing to Gentiles. He's not writing to the people who are experiencing his persecution. He's writing to people who would have heard the stories of Paul's persecution of the Jews which was part of the argument the Judaizers would use to disqualify Paul. Guys, can you really follow this guy? After all, he was going after the Jews, trying to kill them all for believing in Jesus. So Paul says, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. So again, he's saying something here that he says later. He says later, he says, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul's saying, I was the top dog when it came to Judaism. When it comes to all the Pharisees, you know, there's the Sanhedrin, and we know that because he sees and together they construe the Sanhedrin. Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, and we know that because he's the guy standing there when Stephen gets stoned. He's the guy hand, holding everybody's jacket as the Pharisee enforcing the judgment. And so Paul's saying, look it, I, I was the most zealous. You think these Judaizers are zealous? They're nothing compared to what I was. I was the Jew of Jew. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. And anybody who is teaching anything contrary to what these Judaizers are teaching you, I killed them and I did everything I could to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And so God used... Paul's persecution 
um, of the followers of the way that he had no desire. In other words, he used his hatred for the church to let there be no doubt whatsoever that he was chosen by man to be an apostle. God used the one guy the Jews were most afraid of, Paul. And he had no, Paul had no desire to be an apostle. He really had no desire to be a Christian. He hated Christians. I mean, that's, that's a mild statement. You can put any other word. If you hate a religious sect enough to want to murder the people who believe that way, that's a pretty deep hatred. And that's exactly how Paul felt. And that was exactly why he was on his way to Damascus. He was advancing zeal against the church of Jesus Christ. And it was totally his own doing. Nobody was making him do it. Men were making him do it. He was the king of persecutors. And he just wants to make sure everybody's got this clear. I wasn't some undercover apostle pretending to be something else, waiting for an opportunity to break out. So the fact that Paul is a Christian and an apostle to the Gentiles is totally unexplainable. How does this happen? How does the guy who is, you know, as far as Jews were concerned, there were posters on the wall. They weren't wanted posters. They were beware posters. If you hear about this guy, if you see this guy, hide, run. Don't tell anybody where we're meeting. Don't let anything out because he will hunt us down and he will take us away to be killed. So, This leads to step two of his argument. So step one was that God's mission included Gentiles in his plan from the beginning. There wasn't a plan A and a plan B. The other thing is, is that before he was born, his destiny, God destined him for this calling as he did everybody in this room. We all have a purpose and a destiny. None of us, before we were conceived... I mean, the day our moms got pregnant, God didn't go, oh, my goodness, I didn't plan for this one. What am I going to do? What kind of plan? Before you were ever conceived, before you were knit together in your mother's womb, the, the prophet says, I knew you. So Paul is letting it be known that, look, it. before I was even a thought of my mother and father, and before I was in my mother's womb, God had a destiny for me. And decades later, in the midst of Paul's hatred for Christians, when Paul is at his most despicable point, God confronts him with his destiny. God, Jesus, confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. So part of the going back to the argument of the qualification for apostleship, even though Paul was not part of the twelve. Even though he wasn't in the upper room with the 170 when Jesus appeared, even though he wasn't there when Jesus ascended to heaven, Paul did see Jesus after his resurrection. He just saw him a little more close and personal than anybody else did with such a blinding glory of light that it blinded him for three days. And when he saw Jesus, it wasn't, hey, Paul, buddy, how you doing? It's Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? And so, you know, he says in verse 16, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. So Jesus is revealed to Saul. 
Saul is blinded. He's led by hand to the house of Ananias. We have no account that at that moment, Paul said, oh my goodness, I'm a believer. It tells us he spent three days with Ananias. There was a process by which Paul had to decide, was this encounter enough to change my heart and to change everything I believe and everything I've been doing? Or was it not enough? And when I'm over this, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Paul came to a point of decision in his life. And even though God chose him, and even though he confronted him, Paul still had to make the choice to turn around from being a Pharisee, to turn around from being a persecutor, to become a lover and encourager and builder of the church. And so he, he saw the utter beauty and the worth of Jesus in that moment, in those three days of the Jesus he was persecuting. Um, he, he saw the end. He saw the destruction of all his religion. I mean, think about it. In those days, he had to come to the conclusion that the religion he was so vehemently defending was wrong. And therefore, he had to walk away from that religion. But here's the important thing. He didn't walk away from the Word of God. He walked away from his interpretation of what he believed the Word of God said. So Paul had to be retaught. You know, it tells us Paul was taught, and you remember when we went through Acts, Paul was taught by Gamaliel, who was considered to be like the Albert Einstein of teachers. Gamaliel was the teacher of teachers, and Paul was his number one student. So Paul is like the valedictorian of the graduating class of the school of Pharisees. He's the guy who knows it frontwards and backwards. So there has to be this, this season of deprogramming Paul. There has to be this intervention. And so everything had to change for Paul. That means the way he thought had to be turned totally upside down. Everything he thought was wrong had to become right. And everything he thought was right had to become wrong. And if you just look at your own heart and life right now, if everything you've learned all your life as a follower of Jesus, if all of a sudden Jesus encountered you on the road and said, you know what, everything you guys have believed since kids was not the true gospel, here's the true gospel, how would that rattle your world? How would that shake your heart? What kinds of questions would you be asking? What kind of doubts would you have? How can... How can I believe anything now? How can I believe Judaism when I have this light on the road telling me everything's wrong, but how can I believe this light on the road when everything I've learned my whole life points in a different direction? So Paul was really at a point of conflict after his Damascus encounter, after his Damascus experience. And so how could he even imagine preaching a gospel that he hated and rethinking his entire understanding of the Old Testament. So it began a process. And here's his answer to those two questions, beginning in verse 16 through verse 21. God showed up to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul, the Jew of Jews, never once questioned Shouldn't I be going to the Jews? 
Shouldn't I be going to all these people I've taught all these years? Shouldn't I go correct my teachings? And here's the, in that encounter, he knew as he grew that his call was not to Jews. And here's the reason he knew it. Because the Jews would never believe him. That they would think it's, this is the, the scheme of schemes. This is the trap of all traps. This guy is going to convince us that he's one of us now. And once we bring him into the middle and we get everybody into one room, we've done his job for him. He doesn't have to hunt us down anymore. He's got us all at one place. So it would be very hard for Paul to go to the Jews. So Paul was destined as the Jew of Jews to go to the Gentiles. That's why the Judaizers are questioning his authority because they're looking at him as the Jew of Jews, as one who persecuted Christians, and they're trying to get the people throughout the region of Galatia to look at Paul in the same eyes. So he says this, I did not, did I, did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So here's what Paul's saying. After I encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and after I accepted what my destiny was, I avoided contact with the 12 apostles, and I went to, to Arabia for three years. So after he, and after that, he came back. Again, he didn't sit down with the apostles. He spent 15 days with Peter, and the only other apostle he ever talked to was James, the brother of Jesus. So if his gospel and his authority were going to be valid, two things had to be true. His apostleship came from Jesus and not from the other apostles. So his message, his gospel would have to be in harmony with theirs, but couldn't come from them. Because then that would mean, he says, I was not given my apostleship by any men. If he had immediately gone to the apostles and they had discipled him and trained him and then he came out and said, I'm an apostle, everybody would have said, you're an apostle only because those 12 guys say you're an apostle or 11 guys. We don't know if Matthias was there teaching or not. It's angels. Um, so his message in his gospel would have to be and authorities there. So it had to be an independent authority with a united message. In other words, Paul had to receive his authority from somebody other than man, but his message would have to be in agreement with what the other apostles were teaching. If it wasn't, he would be disqualified. So the point of, of verses 16 through 21 was that neither uh, the Jerusalem apostles or any other human being called Paul. No human being went to Paul and said, come on, buddy, you, you're our prize. We have, we have led the Jew of Jews to Jesus. You're going to be our trophy kid. We're going to put you on the shelf. 
we're going to make you an apostle, and boy, are we going to do great things together. None of that happened. Paul met Jesus on a road. He did have some guys with him, but these guys were persecutors. We don't know what happened to them, but Paul encounters them. He goes to Ananias, and he goes to Arabia for three years. There was no human, no apostle who ever who trained Paul or who um, appointed Paul to be an apostle. It was only Jesus. Paul, he was not secondary and dependent upon James. He wasn't dependent upon John. He was not secondary in apostolic authority. In other words, if he had been appointed by men, his authority would be different than the other 11 because they were appointed by God. So Paul, in order to have equal authority, had to have the same appointment, had to have the same encounter, had to have the same uh, qualifications to be an apostle. So he is a radically new man um, whose uh, change can only be accounted for by the risen Christ. Um, and so in verses 16 through 21, actually beginning with 21, so it's verses 21 through 24. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. So he's gone to churches who have already accepted Jesus, but have no idea who Paul is. In other words, when he walked into the room, nobody goes, Paul, that's Paul, Paul's here. Nobody knew who he was. He was just an average, regular Joe who came into the midst of house churches. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So he didn't tell anybody who he was. There were rumors that started to filter in. This is the guy who was persecuting and killing the Christians. But his teachings were so profound and so right on that they glorified God in the teachings of Paul. So Paul went to a place where he wasn't known, where after, and, and understand, he knew the Bible frontwards and backwards. There are people I know who aren't saved who know a lot of Scripture that they use to their benefit. But when people get saved, the revelation of the Word of God breaks forth in their mind. All of a sudden, that which was a weapon to manipulate now becomes a powerful weapon of truth to transform people's lives. And that's what Paul is. So Paul, you know, Paul the persecutor and destroyer of Christians was preaching the faith he had tried to destroy. And Paul's point here is this. There is no adequate explanation for my life apart from the glory of God demonstrated to me through Christ. There is no other explanation. There is, you cannot attribute who I am to any of the apostles. You can't attribute who I am to any man. You know my reputation. The only thing that can be attributed to my change and my position and my authority is God through the revelation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So since Paul is not dependent on men, it supported his authority and the gospel were from Christ. In other words, because he could, without any question, prove to them that he wasn't trained by any man, the only place his authority could have come from was Jesus. And therefore, 
those who are listening to Paul and listening to his accusers saying is not true because of the authority Paul was given by Jesus. Because he says in verse 10, For I am now seeking the approval, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul said, look it. <laughs> if I'm trying to, 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 to win people over, then I'm not who Jesus called me to be. I know what I'm called to do is not going to be popular. I'm called to represent Christ. He's not a man pleaser. He is called to say the hard things that need to be said, which we're going to find as we read the rest of this letter because he is saying a hard thing right now. He is challenging them. He's saying, how could you guys so quickly turn from what I taught you simply because somebody comes along and says, I'm not who I say I am. Let me go back and rehearse to you who I am and how I got where I was and by what authority I speak. And so Paul was always the confronter. He confronted in love, but Paul was always the one, as we read the, the awesome foursome, we're going to find that Paul is confronting and encouraging. He's confronting sin, and he's telling how to overcome sin. Right now he's confronting false teaching, and he's teaching them how to determine what is false and what is real. And the measurement of what is false and what is real is who Jesus is and what the Word of God says. So um, Paul says that there is those who are going to contradict what I'm saying because what I'm saying is the gospel. So it's not the gospel because I say it's the gospel because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that God has given to be preached about his son. So he goes on and he says in verse 8 and 9, he says, but even if, if we, meaning him, because we're nice the letter, he says, from me and all the brethren who are with me. So when he says we, he's including those brethren. We don't know who they are. But he says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So Paul's demanding that there can be no contradiction to the gospel he's preaching. He's basically saying, look at guys, I'm going to go out on a limb here. In fact, he goes on and he says, not only if other people, he says, even if I come to you with a different gospel, I'm to be cursed and damned as well. He said, it is thin ice you walk upon when you present a gospel that contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any gospel that is different than salvation comes through grace by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Any other thing that's called a gospel that's different to that is a false gospel, and whoever teaches it is to be damned, including myself. If I taught anything different, if I ever teach anything different, the penalty of that teaching is damnation. He says, if Peter or James or John, or even an angel comes down out of heaven, and you know it's an angel, and they say something different to you than what I've said, let them be accursed as well. So, but if heaven came, if God came to Paul and said, Paul, um, the gospel you preached is flawed, um, you left out circumcision, Paul would have repented, 
And he would have come back and he would have said, look it. When Jesus encountered me on the road and he spent three years with me and we went through verse by verse by verse, the one thing he said to, to, seal, not to see your salvation is circumcision. Paul would have taught that. He would have taught whatever Jesus told him to teach. Jesus taught him this, that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And therefore, salvation is no longer by what you do. Salvation is now by what has been done. And that was the difference between the message of the Judaizers and the message of Paul. Paul's message was the message of what Christ has done. The Judaizer's message was what you still must do in order to merit salvation. And so he says, even if heaven had said, you know, he would change, but the gospel wasn't his own. It was from the risen Christ. His authority was higher than angels. Whoever this new Paul is, he's calling the first Paul a preacher of a false gospel. He's, he's taking full responsibility for what he was doing before he encountered Jesus as being false. And he was saying this, if I had continued in that false gospel, my demise would have been damnation by God himself. The gospel I preached before I encountered Jesus was a false gospel. The gospel that I was preaching before Jesus was the law, the law, the law, the law. There is no grace, there is only the law. And he said, if, I'm, if I kept preaching that, I would be damned. But when I encountered Jesus, Jesus took that which I knew to be the law, and he showed me how grace has fulfilled the law. He showed me how Jesus has fulfilled the law. So now if I go back to my old message that I was preaching before I encountered Jesus, my penalty is damnation. And so is the penalty of anybody else who teaches any other gospel besides the gospel of salvation through grace and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's teaching was true. His life was flawed. I mean, he still struggled. We, we read about, we'll read about it in other, other books. He still struggled. You know, Paul's the guy who infamously says, why is it the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I want to do, I don't? I know none of us identify with that at all. His message was not flawed. And that's what he was arguing Yes, I was a flawed guy, but now I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ. But it's not about me. It's about the message that I preach now. The message that I preached before I was saved is different than the message I preach now that I'm saved. And the message I teach now that I'm saved is true. It's pure. It's just. It's holy. It's right. It is the gospel, period. So... Um, the final explicit step in Paul's argument is this. When apostles, apostles, when apostles, we make up words in this church. Um, when apostles are teaching the church, they do not err. That's a pretty strong thing to say, but it had to be the truth. In other words, According to scripture, it says that the church was built upon the prophets and the apostles. So it was built upon the prophets because the prophets are the one who told us how Messiah would come and what he would look like. It was built upon the apostles because the apostles' teachings had to be 100% absolutely true. 
And so when an apostle taught, and you won't find anything written by any of the apostles in Scripture that contradict each other. They all point to the same truth. They all point to Jesus. And that was the strong point Paul was making. If I am an apostle, and if I am appointed by Jesus Christ, then you need to know I cannot teach anything that is in error. Apostles don't do that. Apostles are not about themselves. They're about the kingdom. They're about the representation of Jesus Christ and making certain that the teachings that are taught are in full compliance and support of what the truth of the gospel says. Paul's authority as Christ's apostle was unimpeachable. And that's the point he was making. Every gospel that was preached alternatively to what his was, was damnable. His gospel was not. It was unimpeachable. The whole thrust of this chapter is Paul's telling them they should not turn away from Paul's gospel. You cannot go after the gospel of the Judaizers because they are not apostles. They are not sent by God to teach, and they're contradicting salvation through grace and faith in Jesus Christ. They're teaching you something that contradicts. So if you're going to measure the teaching of apostle against the teaching of a Judaizer, you correct, which was a bold statement for Paul to make. He had to back up his words, but Paul did back up his words. There's nothing, I mean, <clears throat> if we didn't have Paul, we wouldn't have half the New Testament. And so uh, in verse 6, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So again, because of his authority as an apostle, he's saying, guys, we have a problem here. And he's confronting them. I can't believe, and, and the, 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 the thing is, he's not writing like 10 years after he's been there. He's, he's just recently left, and he's saying, I'm astonished at how quickly, guys, I turn my head for a moment and the cookies are out of the cookie jar. You know, it's like, I can't believe how quickly you're accepting and embracing something else that contradicts what I taught you. That you literally want to embrace something that is not saturated in grace. You instead want to walk away from grace and going back to trying earning your salvation. To try and earn God's favor. And astonished at the defection, he puts the focus on God's grace, not his authority. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 5. But here's what he said. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. So Paul's saying, look it, you can't have both worlds. If you're going to live by the law, you're going to be judged by the law. So if you're going to be circumcised according to the law, then you need to know you have to keep every jot and tittle of the law or you will be damned. And the truth was Israel never kept the law. But he says, if you choose to follow Christ in the grace that demonstrated through the cross to know that every time you stumble 
through repentance, through confession of sin, there is forgiveness, and God not only removes the sin, but remembers it no more, then, then you're held accountable to that. So if you want to be held accountable to the law, just know you're going to be damned because you'll never be able to keep the law. So don't nullify the grace of God is what he's saying. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So if any part of your right standing before God comes through law-keeping, then everything Jesus did was in vain. If you have to be circumcised in order for your salvation to be complete, then salvation was never complete. Delia? Do we have apostles now? That's a good question. Um, I would say yes, we do. Um, I would say probably the first measure of an apostle is not someone who has to walk around and say, hey, I'm an apostle. Um, if you look at the response, apostle literally means sent one. So there are many who will say that missionaries are apostles because missionaries are going to unreached people groups and they're taking their gospel to people who have ever no never known. But there's also a thing of authority, as we see here, Paul having authority over a region, over a, none of church over a number of churches, and there are some that God has gifted to have authority, um, and, and not authority in finger-wagging authority, but authority and respect and the fear of the Lord that they listen to what this person says as if God's speaking and they'll follow when that happens. So yes, according to the Bible, our apostles, um, there are some who say there aren't, but they also say there's no prophets today. Um, so simple answer is yes. And if you want a more teaching or want to argue with it, ask David. So <clears throat> I figure the best way to, to show how this works is to come back to Jesus. Always a good place to come. Because Jesus dealt with the same thing Paul was dealing with. He dealt with it first. And, and we see it in Matthew 21. And I, I want to read to you. So Jesus is in the temple and the, 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 um, the priests, the chief priests and the elders are confronting him, questioning his authority. The same as the Judaizers are questioning Paul's authority. So here's, here's Jesus in Matthew 21. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I'll also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. What a brilliant answer. <clears throat> the baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then do you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. <laughs> and he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
What a great conversation. But we're going to find, and, and listen closely, salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ has not changed since the day of Paul. It's exactly, there's only one gospel. It's the gospel we preach today. And if we want to know what grace is, we have to know what the Word of God says because grace is not defined by man, it's defined by God. And here's the thing we have to always remember. Truth is not a theory. It's not a practice. It's not a definition. Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the only way I approach God is through Jesus. He's the truth. He's the only way. The other side of that is this. Love is not an emotion or a feeling. Love is also a person. First John tells us, God is love. And this is the love of God. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us first and sent his son for us. The moment we allow our debate to become over definitions and we forget the person of Jesus and the personhood of God the Father and the personhood of the Holy Spirit living within us, the more we will get sucked in to a Judaizer mentality that says grace and salvation are something different than they are. Salvation is one thing and one thing alone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the more we understand Jesus the person, the more we understand God the person, the easier it is for us to walk in his ways and to come from him in brokenness and contriteness when we fail in our weakness. But the more we see truth as a definition, the more we see love as an unpulling lovers. And that's God is the Wizard of Oz behind a curtain pushing buttons and pulling lovers. And that's not who he is and that's not who we are. See, the thing that changes people's lives is the thing they're looking for. They're not looking for someone to condemn them and tell them everything they've done wrong. They're looking for someone to tell them that Jesus already took care of everything they did wrong and he loves them just where they are and how they are. And that's the gospel. In the last week of his life in Jerusalem, and, and this is the last week of Jesus' life, so this is just before they crucify him. His authority is questioned. And this morning, Jesus puts it like this to us. The gospel Paul preaches, is it from heaven or is it from men? Because that was the whole argument. They were saying, you got your gospel from Peter and James and not from God. Paul's argument was, I was never with Peter and James. I was never with them to teach me anything. I was only with God and only with the word of God. And that's what taught me. And if we lose the supremacy and the authority of this apostolic word of Scripture, then we're going to lose the gospel. We're going to lose the grace of the gospel. You know, we're going to see Paul devotes two whole chapters. And by the way, he didn't write chapters. We just broke it down so it's easier to understand. But Paul spends a big section of this letter <clears throat> of talking about the supremacy of the Word of God 
and how we lose the gospel of true grace if we don't believe what the Word of God says. Um, there's only one gospel that saves, and there's only one authority that never, ever errs, and it's Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the message of Jesus found in God's Word. It's the glory of God alone. It's the authority of the unerring Word of God. So my prayer is that the Lord will grant us love for apostolic authority, love for this apostolic gospel. And so to do that, I think we need to have a taste of apostolic seriousness. We need to be serious about the life God has called us to. Paul was serious unto death. Every one of the apostles was serious unto death. John, though he died of old age, was serious unto death and survived it all and died of old age in a leper's colony. So the seriousness and sadness that many in the church are turning away from the gospel of grace, the two gospel of grace, we need to be concerned about that. And we need to be the voice that stands up and says, guys, let's go back and look at what scripture says. We're not going to speak on our authority to tell you it's wrong. We're going to speak on the authority of the Word of God. And we're going to look at what the Word of God says, and let's figure this out together. Because, you see, our job is not to condemn. Our job is to point out error in love. Our definition of this virtue called acceptance is not accepting everything that's evil is good. Our definition of acceptance is love your enemies. Because love covers everything. So, and who are our enemies? You know, the disciples asked, well, who is our brother? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Our enemy is anybody who does not believe this. When that Mormon knocks on your door, you're supposed to love them. When that Jehovah's Witness knocks on you, you're supposed to love them. When that co-worker says everything they can, <clears throat> you know, about crazy people, who follow after God, only, you know, only God-fearers are voting for this person or that person. It's not about politics. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus. Our job is to point them to Jesus, and the only map we have is this, the only map to grace. So we need to love this word. We need to be serious. There needs to be a seriousness of anger towards those who destroy or distort the gospel and destroy lives. There are a lot of people who are going to be shocked when they stand before the Lord because they believed a gospel that was not in this book. We need to be angry about that, but not the anger that says, I'm going to get my gun and shoot the false teacher. The Bible says to be angry and sin not. The anger that says, I'm going to allow love to be more powerful than evil and understand that what the enemy intends for evil, God will use for good, and where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And above all, there has to be a seriousness about joy. If there's anything the church needs to walk in, I mean, who wants to be a part of the sad group? Who wants to go to the Debbie Downer House Church? You know, let's just all sit around and talk about what's... I mean, relationship is the heart of our joy. You guys are the heart of my joy. Us being together, looking at each other face to face, sharing life together, breaking bread together, crying together, laughing together. That's what this is all about. This is what Peter says. Whom having not seen you love, meaning Jesus, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
And that needs to be our mantra, that we are the people who are full of inexpressible joy and the glory of God. Because people want to be around joyful people. There's enough Debbie Downers around, or Danny Downers, I don't want to be, you know, politically incorrect here. There are enough people Downers around <laughs> that we need to make sure that we are the body of Christ who are full of inexpressible joy in the glory of the Lord, who walk in the truth of the Word of God. So next week, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, if you want to read ahead and just write down your own thoughts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you, God, for the apostolic authority of Paul. We thank you, God, for the apostolic revelation that you gave to each one of the apostles whose letters and whose words, God, were included in your word. We're asking, God, that we'd be zealous for you because you are the truth. And that we'd be zealous as a father, as a child of the Father of, of all glory because he is love. And that we would walk as truth and we would walk as love as we proclaim this gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.